People Jesus Met, we've been looking at the series of People Jesus Met, and I want to show you a picture uh, of a number of different people, and I want you to have a think about what do they all have in common. Well, the short answer is they're all Christians, and that probably wasn't too hard to work out. Uh, But they're all very different. They all come from very different cultures. And I wonder which one of that lot you identify most closely with. Why is it that when we all say we're following the same person, yet we all look so very different? Maybe we're not so different after all. It's just the front room that Paul talks about looks a wee bit different. It's maybe our culture. I'm not sure, but there's something very different about the way we look, some way the way we act, and maybe we're not as different as we first think. It makes me think about the images we have of Jesus too. When I was younger, the top left-hand side was, was similar to a church window that I was used to. This somber picture of Jesus, this gentle Jesus with the lamb. Isn't it funny how when you look at some of the bottom pictures, how we in the West picture Jesus as being white and blonde with blue eyes. And it's more likely he was... A bit like the one top left, uh, second in from the left at the top there. Our image of Jesus is very different depending on what culture we come from. And is it possible we're asking in this series that I have glossed over the dramatic effects, the dramatic impacts, the values that Jesus lived and taught? Is it possible that my image of Jesus in my Western comfortable world is a wee bit tame? And so in the series, we've been looking at three questions when people met Jesus. How were they changed? What did they learn? And so what? Because there's no doubt about the fact that they were changed many, that many did learn things about him. And they applied that question, so what, to their own lives. And what I want to do this morning is just bring that all to a conclusion. We've heard two people who in some way met Jesus in their encounters, as we heard from them this morning, Beefy and Paul in a powerful way. We want to look at the impact then of the people that met Jesus. What was the impact on the lives of those he met? And I just want to very quickly skirt through some of what we've already been looking at in the series and really try to think for yourself in this, as we do this, is this my image of Jesus or is my image of Jesus a wee bit tame? Okay, the first one we, we looked at, well, the first one I'm going to consider this morning is a swindler, the tax collector, the crook, the traitor. He was changed. This we're looking in the context of the impact of people. He he was changed into a remarkable man of generosity, a person of integrity, a person of character. He gave away, think about this, half of his wealth. And then four times, I think it was, what he had done wrong, he gave back to the people. uh, so, So the generosity and integrity of that man, was he changed? Absolutely. What about the poor people Jesus came across? Very often in the Bible, the people who were uh, lame, who who were disabled in some way, ended up being poor as as a matter of fact. And so the withered hand man that Jasper talked about, Jesus said, reach out your hand. And he was restored. The blind man received sight. And the poor received dignity, restoration and hope. Were they changed? Were they impacted? Absolutely. What about the busy woman, Martha, 
who was a bit of narked at her sister, a bit of an attitude. She developed a servant heart. Was she changed? Yes. What about the sinful woman that we heard about last week? The one who knew her state. The reason why she came to Jesus was because she'd already been transformed. But she went away forgiven. She had a new identity. She knew she was loved. She knew she was precious. Was she changed? Absolutely. What about the one from the other side? The one who'd been married five times and was now living with a bloke. The Samaritan woman. Was she changed? She became a powerful evangelist. And she brought people to Jesus. And they said to her, We now believe not just because of what you said, but because we've met him ourselves and we've heard from ourselves. Then there was the Pharisee at night that Jude talked about who came to to Jesus at night because he was a bit fearful. Was he changed? Absolutely. His motivation was changed to love for Jesus from fear of man. And then the disciples who were discouraged on the road to Emmaus, were they changed? They said our hearts were on fire. And Peter, he was restored, the discouraged disciple, to a powerful, fearless evangelist. Were they changed? Yes, they were all changed. And yet there were some who weren't changed as well. There was the hard-hearted Pharisees, religious leaders. There was the rich young ruler who went away sad because he'd great wealth. And as we look at the lives that Jesus changed, it's quite Not exclusively, but it's really interesting to see the people that he spent most time with. And Ken Humphreys reminded us of this when we were looking at the the Syrophoenician woman and, 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 and the context of that. He reminded us that there are about 500 directives in the, in the Bible to pray, 500 injunctions to have faith, but 2,300 instructions to be with and work with the poor. And so some scholars ask the question, does God have a preferential treatment of the poor, as some would suggest? And as I was looking through this and thinking through this, I was reading one of Philip Yancey's book on it. He quotes someone called Monica Helwig, and she lists maybe something that helps us understand why God did have a preferential treatment or an apparent preferential treatment of the poor. She says this, here are the advantages that the poor have. They know they're in urgent need of rescue. We're talking about destitute poor people. They know they're in need of rescue. They know their dependence on God and on each other and on others. Their security is not, as Paul reminded us, on things but on people. They don't have an exaggerated sense of importance of themselves. They know the difference between necessity and luxury and the gospel for them is good news and they've little to lose. What about the outcast? C.S. Lewis said this about a prostitute. He said, a prostitute is in no danger of finding the present life so satisfactory that she can't turn to God. But the proud and the self-righteous are in that danger. And so Jesus changed the lives of those who came to him needing him. And he first announced his manifesto, if you like, In Nazareth, in Luke 4, it's recorded, and he he reads the passage from Isaiah, and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to what? Proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the Lord's favor. Today, the scriptures fulfilled in your presence. Like those chains, Jesus said, I came to set people free. 
People's lives were changed dramatically through Jesus. Dramatically. For those who were vulnerable enough to know their need of him. So the next question we're asking is, what did they learn and what did we learn? Well, it's hard to summarize all this, but here are some of the things that we've learned as we've gone along. One is that Jesus is a man of emotion. When he was at Lazarus' tomb, what are we told Jesus did? He wept. When he was looking over Jerusalem, what did he do? He wept. I have maybe told you this before. I don't mind telling you, but please don't share it too widely. I don't mind weeping. I'm quite emotional sometimes at stupid stuff. And it really bugs me when I'm watching something quite emotional on the TV and Amy and Ellen are in the same room. And Bethel and I are watching it. Maybe something like Long Lost Families, when somebody's restored. And the really powerful moment comes up. And you just see out of the corner the two heads turning around to look at you. And it so spoils the moment. But Jesus was passionate about things that really mattered. He was moved over the leper. He cried over people. But he's also talked about as being full of joy in the Holy Spirit when the 72 returned. This was a man who wore his heart on his sleeve. He was furious with the money changers, you remember. He tossed the table over, he got a whip, and he started throwing the people out. He was emotional about the things that mattered. That's not the somber image that's portrayed in the church window that I saw when I was a child. He passionately cared about what really mattered. Jesus was emotional. He was also engaging. He was a guy that quickly established intimacy with people. Have you ever noticed that? Just immediately, he involved them in conversation. And on one occasion, and this is amazing, he preached to a bunch of people for how long? And they didn't have any doors like here. They could have left. Three days. And they were starving. Three days. That's good preaching. I'm not sure what you said there. Don't want to know. Jesus engaged people. He was really engaging. He spoke with authority. He used memorable parables. But here's another thing. He was unpredictable. He was easily distracted. Do you remember when folk were pestering Jesus and the disciples thought they were pestering Jesus, bringing the children to him? And the disciples said, no, 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 keep them away. He needs, he, needs, he needs some rest. Jesus said, no, let the little children come to me. He was distracted by the children. There was an elderly woman when Jesus was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter and she touched his cloth, his, his garment. What did Jesus do? He stopped. He said, who was it touched my, who was it touched my garment? And he took time, he was distracted, instead of going to heal this person who was really ill and ended up dying. And then he raised her from the dead. And he said to the woman, your faith has healed you. She distracted him. As he was approaching Jerusalem, Jude talked about the blind man. Jesus is going to his final week. He's explained to his disciples how important this is, what's going to happen. And a blind man called him out and he said, oh, hang on a minute, hang on, who is that? And he took time to heal him. And then after that, he went into Jericho, Zacchaeus, he says to him, I'm going to your house for dinner. If you were Jesus' campaign manager, you'd be going mental. And yet, distraction after distraction, Jesus was unpredictable. 
And yet, he was consistent. He never compromised on sin. The only thing that people could accuse him of, is who, uh, of the religious people could accuse him of, is who he said he was. That was the only crime they could pin on him, saying that I am the Messiah. I am God. But he was also, and I find this challenging, non-judgmental. He looked at the loose woman from a different religion and he talked to her. He talked to the religious man who came to him in secret. He didn't say, you're a Pharisee, I'm not talking to you. He talked to the unfortunate woman caught in adultery and rescued her. The traitor who worked for the enemy state. The prostitute who anointed him, the thief on the cross. Jesus looked past the packaging and treated the person with respect and dignity. I suppose Jesus had, Jesus had a messy front line. We talk in this church a lot about the front line, our circle of influence. And Jesus had a really messy front line. He enjoyed the company of many so much that he was accused of being himself a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Can you just see yourself being accused of that? Oof. But dodgy that guy's a friend of some of those gluttons in the cloisters. What does that do to your testimony? He had a crazy bunch of followers. He had a tax collector working for Rome and a zealot who would have killed him happily. It was like having a Republican and a Loyalist in the same bunch of followers. He commanded a tax collector over a religious leader. He struck up connections with people who'd been who were living in sin. He accepted worship from a prostitute, and his dying breath, he forgave a thief. Jesus was the friend of sinners. He hated the sin and loved the sinner. This is what Philip Yancey says about Jesus. He obstinacy frustrated him, like people stuck in their ways. Self-righteousness angered him, and simple faith thrilled him. Why was Jesus the way he was? Just very briefly, going back to the diagram we, we talked about once before. Why was he different? He wasn't in the religious value system. He wasn't in the world value system. He was different. Um, he brought a kingdom value system. And the kingdom values said something about why he was unpredictable. Because these people mattered. He was prepared to be distracted. And there's something... I don't know. There's something in today's culture about being organized and being, you know, focused and getting your priorities right. And, <clears throat> you know, I have to say no to this good cause, but I've got to go on because I'm... And sometimes maybe it's okay to say, do you know what? I'm prepared to be distracted. This is a God thing. This is a kingdom thing. And so we come to the question for all of us, so what? What are we to do with this Jesus who surprised us, maybe? The one who transformed the lives of those he met. The one who set the captive free. The one who turned the swindler into a man of integrity and character. The one who gave hope and dignity to the poor. The one who forgave the sinner who restored the brokenhearted. The one who preached with authority, healed miraculously and cared recklessly. What are we to do with Jesus? There was a similar question that a bunch asked Jesus on another occasion. They'd been fed by him, 5,000 men and then some. And they came looking for him the next day and he said, you know what, you're looking for me because you want something like food. 
You need to look for something that's not going to perish. You need to look for something that's permanent, something that's eternal. And they said to him, okay, so what are we going to do? So what, what are we going to do? What, how do we do the works that the Father or, or, or that God has asked of us? The words they use, what must we do to do the works that God requires? Because in the Jewish mind, the Jewish mind was all about good things to earn the favor of God. And Jesus said, the work of God, not the works, but the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe, not works, work. Believe in the one he has sent. Believe in me. And that belief is not just an intellectual belief. That belief is something which is a trusting, uh, 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 it's, it's a practical belief. It's like the chairs you're sitting on, believing, the, the King James talks about believing on the name of Jesus or the, 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 the one he has sent, putting your trust in me. The problem was Jesus left no room for half-hearted admiration. He was saying to them, look, he said on many occasions, I am, I and the Father are one. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He nearly got stoned for what he said about who he was. The problem was either I'm God or I'm not. And if I'm not God, ultimately, I'm either mad or I'm pretty sinister. So you can't have a half-hearted approach to me. Believe in the one he has sent. That's it. You don't be a good Jew. You don't be a good person, a good Hindu, a good this, a good that, a good Christian. You believe in me and that's it. You put your trust in me. And there comes a point when we all must decide whether we're going to believe in him, put our trust in him. Jesus said, I have come to open your eyes to who I am, to set you free from guilt, to set you free from burden. And he didn't promise an easy life. I've come to give you good news, he said, of an inheritance that's yours. And Charles Wesley trusted and declared, my chains fell off, my, hearts was free. my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. Ultimately, all of us have to answer that question. Do you believe? And it's not enough just to intellectually believe. Ultimately, we've got to say, Lord, I get it. And I am prepared to put my trust in you. And if you do, I really believe like the people that Jesus met, you will be changed. What about the rest of us then? Who call ourselves followers of Jesus. Who have taken that step of faith and believed in him. Ken Humphreys a few weeks ago said this to us. He said, 85% of the church is owned and governed and populated by the wealthy and comfortable. How come the church today then attracts that same bunch of people that typically rejected Jesus? And that's okay. That's good. But here's the issue. How come we somehow repel those who were drawn to Jesus? Because Jesus made the outcast and the destitute, the sinner, welcome. What would it take for Grace Fellowship to be that place? Would it take me to have a messier front line? It certainly would mean I'd have to lean on him more, wouldn't it? If you want to know how to get a bit more messy in your front line, check this week's email from Grace. There's a few opportunities in there for you. Is my image of Jesus too tame? I think so. 
I really do. Has it been watered down from the reality? I think so, yes, about the values that Jesus taught and lived. I'm challenged by that. Perhaps it's time to change my priorities and be a bit more unpredictable. In my circle of influence, my front line, maybe I need to move it forward to a more messier place. Maybe. No, I think I do. And I want to. I have a, I have a kind of balanced way up every day. Do I want comfort or do I want purpose? And you ask Beefy or you ask Paul which they chose and would they take that back? I suggest they'll tell you I chose purpose on that occasion. The bottom line is, I want to take Jesus at his word and I want to believe on him. I want to trust in him. And in order to do that, I think I have to go deeper and depend on him more. Is my image of Jesus too tame? I think so. Am I challenged by it? Yes. Am I going to do something about it? I hope so. I ask you to challenge me in the next weeks and months. Ask me what I'm doing about it. There's my accountability to you and maybe you'll journey with me as we collectively try to get our front lines maybe a bit more messy.